0: Well, in a few short minutes, I say a few short minutes, and it really will be a few short minutes, uh, it, the, the clock will turn noon. I don't look at your watch and think we're running late or anything, but really in the span of time, in a few short minutes, it'll be turning noon. But I want us to not think about noon right now. I want us to think about midnight. You know, midnight is the farthest time of the day that you can get away from noon, Midnight is that time in the deepest part of the night. As we sit here in the comfort, as we sit here in the calm and in the serenity and in the peace of this place right before it turns noon, sometimes it might be hard to think about midnight. But I want us to reflect on midnight. Midnight is a time when one day passes into the next day. Midnight is the time when everything about the previous day is cast into the past. Whether it's good memories, all the good memories of the past day are reflected back into the past. Or whether it's the bad things. The bad things are slowly turned into scars as we pass into the next day. They're the things to be mourned. It's also the time when the calendar changes to a new day. And as the calendar changes to the new day, you have the hopes and the dreams and the desires and the plans and all of those things that come with a new day, all of those things that lie ahead. But midnight, it not only reflects a time on the watch or a time on the calendar, midnight can reflect something else to us. You know, midnight is the time that you think of that would... If you were to try to think of the darkest time of the night, you would think of midnight. It represents a time when we're at our lowest point. Midnight can represent the time when we're in the most physical or emotional pain. If you reflect on the times of your life when you've been in the most physical or the most emotional pain, you can think of that as the midnight of your life. Midnight is a time when our heart is so broken or so burdened that we can almost wonder if the sun is ever going to come up, if we're ever going to be lifted up out of this darkness. Some people, one of the most common ways that people will describe depression is they will describe their depression as feeling like they're in the deepest, darkest midnight of their life. There's no way to pull themselves out. Some people who are in the throes of addiction will describe that as being the darkest midnight of their life that they can't pull themselves out of. Some people's physical pain drags them into a darkness that they think will never end and they can't imagine when the sun will come up out of that darkness. If you've ever lost a spouse or lost a parent or God forbid lost a child, that can be like a midnight to you. You know, sometimes work situations, when, when things are really bad at work and you can't really see a way out, sometimes that can feel like your midnight. Sometimes financial situations, if you get caught under the avalanche of debt and you can't see your way out, sometimes that can feel like your midnight. Sometimes family relationships or, or other relationship situations can feel like you're midnight. I don't know if you're experiencing a midnight right now. As I look out over the congregation, I know that some of you probably are feeling like you're in a midnight right now. I don't know whether you are or not, but here's what I do know. Each person in here is in one of three places in life. Either you're experiencing that midnight right now, and if you are, I want you to know that my heart goes out to you. But either you're experiencing that midnight right now, or you're recovering from your midnight, or you're getting ready to experience your midnight. All of us are in one of those three places right now. Each of our clocks, if you think about the face of a watch, you, the face of your watch is either moving away from midnight or it's moving toward midnight, right? And that's the way we are in our lives. When you think about it, even when we're moving away from midnight, we're moving toward the next one, right? Well, preacher, this is awful depressing. I didn't come here to... Well, I, didn't, I don't want to scare you and I don't want to depress you. But I do want to be real with you. And if we're real with each other, sometimes we'll realize that the plastic smile face that we put on when we come into church. And somebody asks you, well, how are you doing, brother? How are you doing, sister? that We don't want to tell them about the midnight that we're going through. So I don't want to scare you. I don't want to depress you. But I want to be real here this morning. Because I think that being real is the only way that we'll be able to survive that midnight when it comes. That's the only way that we can survive the kind of midnight that Paul and Silas experienced in our passage this morning. Look back at verses 19 through 24. But when our owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas. And dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. You're going to have to put on your your uh, uh, imagination cap. Is that such a thing? You're going to have to use your imagination this morning and picture what was going on here. Take away the the sterile uh, Sunday school drawings. Take away those sterile pictures and just immerse yourself in this and and try to feel what was going on here. They seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews and they're disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them. The magistrates tore the garments off them, gave orders to beat them with rods. When they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison. Ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. Now remember what brought all this on. For those of you that have been with us for the past few weeks we've, we as we've moved through Acts chapter 15 or Acts chapter 16 you can remember the scene that was going on Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke they were heading back and they were in Philippi and they were heading back and forth from Lydia's house where they were staying heading back and forth from Lydia's house to this place of prayer by the river right outside of town and as they were moving back and forth, this was a regular practice that they were going through at this time. The church had not been planted yet in Lydia's house, so they were moving back and forth to this place as the place of worship. And as they were regularly making this track back and forth through the streets of Philippi, they began to be noticed by other people in the town. Specifically, they were noticed by a young lady that the text refers to as being possessed, being demon-possessed. This demon-possessed girl and her entourage would follow Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke as they made their way from Lydia's house to the edge of town. And as they were following them, this demon-possessed, this spirit-possessed lady, who was a fortune-teller, would would give testimony as to who Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke Were. And she was giving accurate testimony. She was saying, these are servants of the Most High God. She was giving accurate testimony, but Jesus doesn't need the testimony of demons, does he? So, Paul, after this had gone on for some days, Paul, in his, in his annoyed state, turned and cast the demon out of the woman. Because Jesus doesn't need that kind of testimony. Well, when Paul cast the demon out of that girl, that caused quite a problem. Caused quite a problem because as you remember, if we as we talked about last week, you remember that this was a popular girl. She was popular in the city of Philippi. She was sought after for her abilities. She was able to take in lots of money because of her. Abilities to predict the future. That spirit that she was possessed with enabled her to to predict the future. And anybody who claims to be able to predict the future, people are going to give them money, even in our day, right? So they were giving this girl lots of money. People will pay top dollar for predictions about the future. And this girl was definitely getting top dollar in Philippi, or should I say that her handlers were getting top dollar. They were the ones who were, the money was filtering through. Remember we said Philippi was a wealthy city. It literally, it was wealthy because they they literally had gold mines. And this girl was receiving the money that was coming from those gold mines, this lady and her handlers. When you think about it, they had it made. Financially, they had it made. These handlers, they didn't even have to do anything. They just walked around with this girl Kept her, you know, just like handlers do with movie stars. They kept her, kept the crowds away and all that kind of stuff and filtered the money through. They had it made, didn't they? All they had to do was keep this lady in line and keep the crowds in check. And they had all the money that they could expect. All the money that they could ever expect. Now, I'm sure that they gave her enough money to keep her well-dressed and well-fed and keep her happy and keep her satisfied and all of that. No doubt she was a well-kept woman, but there's also no doubt that she kept her handlers rich, filthy, stinking rich. She was their golden goose until she wasn't. That's when the problems came in. Paul killed their golden goose when he cast the demon out of this girl. She no longer had the ability or the desire to to do what had made her handlers all of this money. Now, it's debatable, but I believe that after the demon was cast out of her, I believe it's not written in the text, but I believe that she trusted Jesus and that she got saved after that time. Like I said, the text doesn't say, but it does say that she did not return to the lifestyle, which would be an indication that she got saved make no mistake about it. She was changed. She was changed. She had changed her lifestyle. And because she had changed her lifestyle, her handlers permanently lost their source of income. And when her handlers permanently lost their source of income, I don't know about you, but when people lose their money, (laughs) you can mess with people in all different kinds of ways. But if you mess with their money, they're going to get mad. And these handlers got angry It made them so angry that they physically drug Paul and Silas to the city magistrates. The city magistrates, they were basically like Roman judges. Now, you're going to have to excuse just a little speculation on my part, so just just forgive me about that. But I think that these Roman judges were awfully quick to do what they did, to pass judgment and punish Paul and Silas they were so quick that they didn't do what was required by roman law what was required by lo- roman law was that there would be a trial what was required by roman law was to find out if these people were roman citizens or not they didn't do any of that they just went straight to the punishment phase they didn't have they didn't have a fair trial they didn't have a trial at all that tells me these magistrates were probably pretty corrupt were they corrupt because they were taking kickbacks from the fortune-telling lady and her handlers? Like I said, that's speculation. But I think it's pretty good speculation. Because if that was the case, they had lost their gravy train as well, hadn't they? It makes sense to me that that was why they were so quick to punish Paul and Silas in such an extreme and illegal manner. It was illegal because there was no trial. It was illegal because Paul and Silas were both Roman citizens, and Roman citizens were not allowed to be flogged. The illegal punishment was very extreme. You think about this punishment that they went through. First thing that happened was they were humiliated. They were humiliated because they were in the middle of this crowd. They were stripped of their clothing. And then they flogged them. These, these police lictors was what they were called. They, they would carry bundles of rods, these rods that were tied together. And these rods actually, ironically, were a symbol of justice. Kind of like we view the scales as a symbol of justice. These rods were a symbol of justice. But these symbols of justice were used to flog Paul and Silas. Now, if you've studied or if you've heard about through different teachings or whatever, you've you've probably heard that the Jews would only allow somebody to be beaten up to 39 times. Because anything after that, they would say, would be extreme. Well, I'd say, you know, getting a whip taken to you anytime is pretty extreme. But they said the Jews said 39 times is the limit. Romans didn't have such law. The Romans would just beat you until the magistrates said, okay, that's enough. So we don't know how many times that Paul and Silas were beaten with these rods, but you can guarantee it was probably until they were almost unrecognizable. The lictors would have beaten them until the magistrates told them to quit. And then on top of that, here's the crowd That sadistic crowd is cheering on the lictors with every lash. Well, after a period of time, we don't know how long, the magistrates and the crowd, they finally got their fill of bloodlust, so they took their limp and broken and beaten bodies and threw them into prison and gave the jailer these special orders. They told the jailer, they said, you are to keep them safely. That doesn't mean to keep them safe from harm. That means to keep them secure to the point that the jailer was to guard them with his very own life. Now they probably heard rumors about how these Christians were hard to keep in jail. You remember the stories earlier on in Acts about how how angels would let Peter out of the prison. they probably heard these stories about how Christians were hard to keep in jail. So they gave the specific instructions to keep him, guard these men with your life. So the jailer took it upon himself to put them in the most secure part of the prison. These Roman prisons, they typically had three parts to them. The, The, I guess least secure part was the communiora. And the communiora, in that part, the prisoners could actually see daylight. They could actually breathe fresh air. It was kind of like the courtyard to the prison. Beyond that part was the interiora. And in the interior, that was behind big, large iron gates and bars and locks and all of those kinds of things. That's the thing that we would think of as a prison. But then under that, they would hollow out the ground under that. And that was called the Tulianum. The Tulianum was basically a dungeon. And that dungeon was where The worst prisoners, that was where the prisoners who were condemned to death would be kept. That was where the prisoners who were the most vile in the eyes of the Roman authorities, that's where they would be kept. By the way, and this is disgusting, but it just tells you the nature of the prison, that Tullianum was also, since it was below the communiora, That was where the raw sewage from that level of prison would flow. That was where the jailer threw Paul and Silas. That was where they were placed. But even that wasn't safe or secure enough for him. Because in verse 24 it says that he fastened their feet in the stocks. Now if you're like me, when you hear fasten their feet in the stocks, you're thinking about an old western where some guy's got his, got his head and hands poking through, uh, something that snaps over their head and hands and, no. This wasn't that type of a thing. This wasn't some sort of leg irons just to, just to keep them in there. What the stocks were in these Roman prisons, they were instruments of torture. Where the legs would be spread as far as they could be spread. And then clamped in place. you imagine the cramping and the horrible pain that that would cause? Naked, humiliated, bleeding, swollen, bruised, painfully bound in a pitch black dungeon covered in their own and everybody else's waste. That's midnight. That's midnight. Whatever the time on the clock was, that is emotional, physical, as well as literal midnight. You know, one of the, I think one of the biggest lies in our society today that Satan tells is when he tells people that Christianity is about having your best life now. So called, whether it's so called Christian TV or in, in the Christian bestseller books or Christian pop radio or any of those things, those things are absolutely full of false teaching that says that the gospel is about our own personal prosperity and comfort. Listen, anytime you come across stuff like that, realize that it is false teaching. And they'll say things like, well, you know, are, are you sick? Just claim healing and, and and you'll you'll get better. Are, are you broke? Just claim financial prosperity, and all of a sudden you'll get it. Uh, you got to send in your faith seed first. Name what you want and claim it. Came across a young lady this week who prayed for her, and and as she walked away, she said, "Just name it and claim it." Right. That teaching is pervasive in our community, and in our world. I, I think the worst lie that that is told tells us that suffering is some sort of an anomaly for believers. They, they tell you that if you're suffering or you're having these kinds of difficulties, they'll tell you that it's due to your lack of faith. That's a lie from the pits of hell, folks. If you're a believer... Jesus promised that you'll suffer. Jesus said, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, deny himself, and take up his cross and follow me. He also said, whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciples. In John 15, Jesus said, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. And then in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, the Apostle Paul said, Indeed, all who desire... How many? All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Listen to me, no matter what... Joel Osteen or Joyce Meyer or any of those other people will say you are not promised prosperity in this life you and I are promised suffering in this life our prosperity we are promised prosperity amen we're not promised prosperity here Our prosperity is when one day we will come face to face with the one who is our treasure, Jesus. That's when our prosperity comes. Our freedom from sickness and pain and depression and fear and hurt will come when we see him. Until then, we walk by faith and not by sight. Until then, our eyes are going to see sadness. Until then, our eyes are going to see hurt. Until then, our eyes are going to see trouble. Until then, our eyes are going to see persecution. Until then, our eyes are going to see suffering. Until then, our eyes will see the dark of midnight. Just like Paul and Silas's eyes saw the dark of midnight. But praise God, when our midnight comes... By the power of His Holy Spirit living in us, He gives us the strength and the grace and the mercy to endure that time. Look at verses 25 and 26. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were open and everyone's bonds we're unfastened. We're loosened. Here's the reality. You and I, we're going to suffer in this life. We already said it before. Your midnight is either here now or it's on, it's on its way. You just need to ask yourself, how are you going to respond to the midnight you're in or the midnight that's coming? How are you going to respond? How are you going to suffer well when the time comes? Well, if you're going to suffer well, you need to have the right source and you need to have the right song. Verse 25 says that Paul and Silas were praying and singing to whom? You're quiet. It says Paul and Silas were singing to whom? They were singing to God, right? They were singing to God. See, this wasn't some sort of foxhole conversion. You ever heard of foxhole conversions? Foxhole conversions are the one, are the ones that when somebody's in all kinds of trouble or when they're experiencing their midnight, they, they say things like, God, if you're up there, God, if you, if you hear me, God, if you get me out of here, then this is what I'm going to do for you. Now this wasn't some sort of foxhole conversion type of thing. This wasn't some sort of a way to manipulate and fin- finagle a uh, get out of jail free card from a friend of a friend. No, they were singing and praying to one who they intimately knew, who they loved and trusted. Now, what were they praying for? What songs were they singing? I don't know. The text doesn't say. The text doesn't say because what they were praying and the songs that they were singing were far less important than the God that they were praying and singing to. Because of the relationship that they already had with him. The reason that Paul and Silas could sing and pray at midnight was because they already knew the God that they were singing and praying to. They already had a relationship with God through his only begotten son, Jesus Christ. Listen, I don't, I don't care what kind of midnight you're going through or what you're going to go through. You have a friend in Jesus that sticks closer than a brother. In other words, if you trusted Jesus as your Lord and Master and Savior, He has promised that you will never, ever, ever be alone. Jesus says, has told us, that He will never forsake us. He will never leave us. Jesus is the source and strength that you need to make it through your midnight. Not only do you need the right source, you need the right song. As I said, the the text doesn't tell us what song they were singing, but just because it was, it said that they were singing hymns, don't picture the idea that they, you know, had their good Baptist hymnal out there and, and were singing something out of the Baptist hymnal. What they were singing was they were singing songs that were already in their head and already in their heart. I'm sure that they sang the Psalms. But I'm also sure that they were singing newer songs as well. When you read Paul's letters, you realize that Paul many times quoted what many scholars say were songs that were sung by the early church. Songs that were drafted and sung by the early church. We've got a good idea that Philippians 2 and that Colossians 1, that parts of those chapters were songs that Paul was quoting. Now, as much as I love, you know, old blues and Muddy Waters, B.B. King and and the Crossroads, all of that. As much as I love old blues, you can guarantee one thing. You can guarantee that Paul and Silas were not sitting there in prison singing the blues. They weren't singing Johnny Cash. Well, maybe when they got out, they were. But while they were in prison, they weren't singing Johnny Cash. Once again, it matters less what songs they were singing than to whom and how they were singing those songs. Notice that they weren't singing inside their heads, were they? They were lifting their voices from the deepest, darkest stench of the pit of that dungeon. They were lifting their voices from that pit of despair. They were singing loud enough that the other prisoners could hear them. I imagine that they were singing loud enough that the jailer could also hear them as well. Notice that they were also singing together. Two voices singing together sound better than one, don't they? When you hear, like when I sit up on this front row here, and I can hear you as the congregation singing behind me, I can't tell you how that lifts my spirits as I get ready to preach the word to you. So when we sing with each other, especially at midnight. When you have the right source and when you have the right song, it not only benefits you, but it strengthens other believers as well. Don't you think? Why do you think that God put Paul and Silas together in prison? Instead of just having Paul there by himself or Silas there by himself. God knew that they needed each other. Don't you think Paul's singing strengthened Silas? Don't you think that Silas's singing strengthened Paul? See, when a believer suffers well, it encourages and it strengthens other believers around you. Not only does it strengthen others around you, it also evangelizes the lost. It's not natural to suffer well, is it? What's the natural in our flesh reaction to suffering? We want to gripe or complain or whine. So it's not natural to suffer well. But when we do what is unnatural by the power of the Spirit in us, when we do what is unnatural, when we take our beating with a song, it shows other people that our hope's not in this world. It shows other people that our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Amen? It gives them a reason, as Peter would say, it gives them a reason to ask us when all of this, when you're in the middle of your midnight and you're praising Jesus in song, it gives others the opportunity to ask us, what is the reason for the hope that's within you? So with all that being said, Let me give you three quick ways that you can prepare for your midnight right now. Three practical ways you can prepare for your midnight right now. First, if you're going to sing well at midnight, then you better be practicing right now. Everything When we come together as a church and when we gather on Sunday mornings, Sunday nights, Wednesday nights, Thursdays, starting in September, when we gather together as a church, everything that we do inside these walls is designed to equip you, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, including singing. The singing that we do is not to gin up your emotions so that you can feel like you're worshiping. No, the singing that we do in here is designed to equip you to be able to sing your way through your midnight. And here's the reality. If you don't sing the songs in here, then you're not going to have the songs when midnight hits. You're not going to have the songs when you need them the most. So sing. Sing. Even if you can't sing, join with me who can't sing and sing. Even if you don't know the words, read them and sing. Even if you don't know the tune, listen and sing. Sing loudly. Sing boldly. Sing so that the people in front of you can hear. Well, that's not too hard. Sing so that the people beside you can hear. Well, that's not too hard either. Sing so, so loud that the people behind you can hear. Amen? Sing loud. Sing bold. And guess what? When you're belting it out, trust me, from someone who knows, when you're singing and you're belting it out and you get the word wrong or you get on the wrong verse or you hit the wrong tune, guess what? Everybody else does, so why not just join them? Don't be embarrassed about it. If you mess up and you sound terrible, then guess what? That's beautiful. We're family here, right? So that might give us something to laugh at each other about. (laughs) We can enjoy each other. Just sing. Second, if you're going to pray well at midnight, and you need to learn how to pray now, Pray while it's daytime. Think about this. Paul and Silas's prayer in the prison that night didn't just start in the prison. That prayer was a culmination of all their prayers up to that point. You know, one of the things when we talk about our prayers, we talk about our prayer life, right? We don't talk about our prayer actions. We talk about our prayer life. We, talk, we call it our prayer life because prayer has to be a lifestyle. Prayer isn't just something that you whip out when you're in trouble. Prayer isn't just something that when you see the blue lights in your mirror that you breathe a prayer, Hi- hypothetically. Prayer is a lifestyle. Prayer is a continual communication with the God who created you, who sustains you, and who saved you. 1 Thessalonians chapter 15, or chapter 5, verses 16 through 18, says, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Always, without ceasing, in all circumstances. That's the foundation that you need to start building now. If you're not doing that now, you won't be able to do that when midnight hits. Sing now, pray now. Finally, if you're going to have somebody to go through midnight with, then you better start building those relationships now. Friendships start and grow in the sunshine. They're proven at midnight, but they start and grow in the sunshine. Why do you think we spend so much time in here talking about hospitality and talking about sharing meals together? We do that because this corporate worship time, I love our Sunday morning corporate worship time. I love our Sunday evening time when we can dig a little bit deeper in the word. I love our Wednesday evening prayer times. I love our Thursday night worship times. I love those times when we gather together corporately. But listen, when we gather together corporately, everybody's facing in one direction and one or two or however many people are facing in the other direction. And when you're all facing in this direction, it's very difficult to build relationships with each other. The only way. See, once again, this is for our equipping. We're being equipped so that we can leave out of here and so that we can build relationships with each other. Developing relationships as brothers and sisters in Christ. We call each other brothers and sisters, don't we? Do we act like it? Now, if you fight with your brothers and sisters, just discard that. But do we really act like the family that we claim to be? Family relationships are built outside of the walls, outside of the corporate gathering. Forensically, if Jesus has saved you, you are part of the family. But relationally, it takes effort on our part. It takes effort to develop and grow those relationships. So what do you need to do now? You need to invest in those relationships now. You need to sing now. You need to pray now. You need to invest in those kind of relationships now. Why? Because midnight's coming. It means you need to get ready. Are you ready to get ready? Let's pray. so often when we see things like we just read about Paul and Silas in prison and persecution, and we sit here in the middle of a nice, cool, and comfortable facility in a peaceful community with really no worries about government officials coming in and hauling us off to jail, Father, it can seem so academic. But suffering is not academic. And Father, I don't know how you've called each of us in here into or through suffering. Whether it's through sickness, Father, whether it's through family troubles, whether it's through work problems, whether whatever the situation, whatever the suffering is, Father, I know that you've called us to suffer well. Lord, we're here to freely confess this morning that we're not able to do that. We're not able to make it through our midnights. So, Father, we humbly come before you right now and say we desperately need you. Lord, if there's one here who's never trusted Jesus as Lord and Master and Savior, um, Lord, I'd ask that they would seek you as their hope that today would be the day that they would trust Jesus. And Father, for those of us who have professed our faith in Christ, Lord, would Your Spirit empower us to live for You well Would your Spirit empower us and prepare us for whatever you have for us? Father, may we be able to exalt Christ not just in the good times, but especially in the difficult times. Father, however you need to deal with hearts, we trust your Spirit to do the work that only you can do. So, Father, this time is yours, and we commit it to you. In Jesus' precious name, amen.